This week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by the New Yorker magazine. Right now, you can get quite literally the best magazine in the world delivered right to your front door for only $6 for 12 weeks. What in the world can you get this good for 50 cents a week? The New Yorker magazine has the best articles, journalism, and writing found anywhere, and it has been the benchmark for quality since it was founded in 1925. If you want to get the New Yorker magazine for $6 for 12 weeks, as well as access to its past archives and daily updated online content, head on over to thenewyorker.com. Before we begin this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I just wanted to say that there are around 700,000 podcasts being made in the world right now. So however you found this one, whether it be on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, the Alexa in your house, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you can think of to listen to podcasts, thanks for being here. If you enjoy the show, we would really appreciate it if you told someone in your life about it. Word of mouth is the greatest way we can be listened to and grow, and as we make Let's Talk About Chef, it is so much fun seeing it being listened to and enjoyed all over the world. If you want your restaurant or favorite restaurant or dive bar or whatever shout out on the podcast, you can write to us for that or any other reason to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can follow me personally on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. We take for granted that the food we eat is safe. We assume that the things that we put into our mouths to nourish and keep us alive should be healthy and hopefully not kill us. We take this for granted. Every now and then, the news is filled with stories of a recall. Some product, whether it be food or drink, accidentally gets laced with a chemical or toxic substance and through human error gets put out to the public. Sometimes people get sick, sometimes people die. Despite not all of these recalls making our social media and Twitter feeds, it actually happens way more often than you would think. If you Google recent food recalls, and in my case living in Canada, I did just that, a massive list shows up saying things like, as recently as September 4th of this year, St. Hubert, a Quebec chicken institution, had their grocery store version of their chicken nuggets recalled because of bone fragments. On August 30th, Rosemount brand cooked and diced chicken was recalled due to listeria. On August 16th, Heinz brand turkey stew baby food was recalled because of the presence of insects in the food. Our bodies, despite what we believe, are fragile. We are weak. And we assume that the food we pay money for in grocery stores and at restaurants should be safe, and to be honest, for the most part, it is. But that wasn't always the case. In the early 1900s, eating store-bought food was something similar to Russian roulette. Because of virtually no laws about the preserving and selling of food, all sorts of chemicals and toxins were used to make the food people ate look fresher and taste better. People were getting sick and dying all of the time because a company would decide to put something like sodium hydroxide into canned peas to make them greener, or put borax onto steak to make it look redder. It was kind of the wild west of food production. No laws, no rules. Just make money until one man, 
decided that he had had enough of watching people get sick. He had had enough of letting companies gamble with the health of their customers, and so he did something kind of amazing. He and a small team of volunteers started taking the chemicals. They started eating the toxins and the lethal ingredients to show the country and the world that the food they were eating was bad. They gambled with their own bodies to save others. This week on Let's Talk About Chef, we're talking about Harvey Wiley and the Poison Squad. The world was changing in the early 1900s, and it was changing fast. Cities everywhere were getting bigger, the land in the west was all but settled and owned, and as the industrial revolution started, the best jobs were only available in cities, and so that's where people went. Over 11 million people moved from the country to cities in the United States from 1870 to 1920. Most of the 25 million immigrants that sailed across oceans to the Americas stayed in the cities that they landed in. Cities very quickly became crowded, overpopulated, and gigantic. And for the first time in history, more people lived in urban areas than in rural ones. And that created one very real and very large problem. How do you feed all of these people? Up until this point, living in rural areas, people had grown their own food, gone to farmer's markets, raised and slaughtered their own livestock to eat the meat that they provided. When most of the country was suddenly living in these growing metropolises, how could you take the steaks and sausages and asparagus and keep it fresh long enough to make the journey from the field to the store, sometimes hundreds of miles away? The answer was preserving. Preserving food is not a new concept. Since prehistoric times, humans have altered the state of food to extend its life and also to improve its taste. 300,000 years ago, our ancestors were using fire to cook and conserve meat. Later, they found that using salt could extend the life of food dramatically. The ancient Romans would preserve food in honey mixed with wine and herbs, even sometimes using salt water to preserve produce. During the Middle Ages, we began to see the first signs of people adding cheaper ingredients to spices and other preservatives to make themselves more money. Imported spices were more expensive than gold, and to an enterprising merchant, they could make that one pound of spice turn into three or four pounds if they cut it with ground nutshells, pits, seeds, or even dust. In America, before the Industrial Age, to make it through harsh winters or periods of drought, people would salt meat, ferment grains, dry vegetables in the sun. Canning and jamming the summer's harvest was a way to ensure that you and your family would survive the winter. 
But what about the people that lived in cramped apartments and worked for 14 hours a day in a factory? They didn't have gardens at home, and they didn't have time to can peaches. They had to spend their money that they made on food, and that food had to look and taste fresh. All of a sudden, all of those ideas from long ago, the ideas of altering food to make money and to extend the life of a product you were trying to sell came back. And in America, there were no laws to stop them. Milk would be watered down and then colored white by adding chalk or plaster. Lead was added to wine or beer. Coffee and tea were commonly mixed with dirt, sand, and ground leaves of whatever tree was growing around the place that the tea was bagged. As more and more food began to be made in factories to feed the cities, more and more chemical preservatives were being added, like borax, sicilic acid, and formaldehyde. And because of this, people started dying. It was then, in 1882, that a Latin chemistry and Greek professor named Harvey Wiley had had enough, and so he joined the United States' brand new Department of Agriculture as its chief to try and make food safe. For 20 years, as he traveled from factory to factory, he found companies adding chalk and wood shavings to bread, honey companies using glucose instead of honey, and borax being used to keep red meat red longer. People kept getting sick and dying from eating the food that was being sold to them. And by 1902, he had seen enough. Something had to be done, and he had an idea of how to do just that. He took $5,000 from the government hired a chef only known as Perry, bought a bunch of food, and formed the Poison Squad. This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Buzzsprout, the world's best and easiest way to host your own podcast. If you have ever thought that you wanted to make your own show, I can honestly say that there is never a better time to start than right now. And like me, let Buzzsprout help you get there. They make it so easy to upload episodes, help you get listed on major podcast directories, and even give you a website. You can watch your podcast analytics in real time and see your shows being listened to all over the world. Sure, there are over 700,000 podcasts being made right now, but yours isn't, and it needs to be. You can try out Buzzsprout free for 90 days by heading over to buzzsprout.com. Get your podcast started today. You won't regret it. In 1902, 12 young undergraduates and Harvey Wiley sat around a table draped in a white tablecloth. They were dressed in immaculate three-piece suits. Their collars were starched white. Their bow ties were tight. The silverware gleamed off of the table. The crystal glasses and china reflecting the candlelight sat waiting for the meal that the chef was preparing in the kitchen next to them. These 12 young men were the poison squad. They had all answered Harvey Wiley's call to arms and volunteered to join the group in order to save others. They were healthy, strong. Each one of them had been handpicked out of the hundreds who had applied for the role that not only offered them free room and board, but also a substantial amount of money to be part of this experiment. The kitchen door swung open and the chef known as Perry came out dressed head to toe in white. He explained each course as it was set in front of them, each one more delicious than the last. You could be mistaken in thinking that there was nothing out of the ordinary here. 
that these men and Harvey were sitting in a grand restaurant in New York or Washington or Philadelphia, casually enjoying a meal in their finest clothes. But you would be wrong. The dining room where the Poison Squad was sitting was in the basement of the Department of Agriculture. The music was coming from a gramophone tucked over in the corner. And the chef wasn't just making them food. He was, with their full knowledge, lacing it with the same poisons that were killing thousands of people in cities everywhere. Formaldehyde was added to the potatoes. Benzinate was mixed into the sauce. And borax, a chemical that was almost impossible to ingest knowingly, was placed into tablets that they would swallow down at the end of the meal. The poison squad was completely insane. But they were also celebrities. The sheer fact that these 12 men had volunteered to try and figure out what was safe and what wasn't made them into stars. Newspapers across the country were writing articles about their bravery and honor. They would get fan mail like they were a member of the Beatles. And among the fan letters would be letters from other young men trying to join the Poison Squad. They would write about how they had iron stomachs, weren't allergic to anything, and didn't fear death. There was even a poem written about the squad. On prussic acid we break our fast. We lunch on morphine stew. We dine with a matchhead consomme, drink carbolic acid brew. As these men ate their deliciously prepared poisoned meals every day, Wiley and his team of scientists would study the effects, closely monitoring the poison squad. After a year of eating borax and other poisons in small doses, the results started to show. Severe stomach pain, loss of appetite, vomiting, and crippling headaches would happen every single day. And then again, every single day, the gramophone would start playing music, and the 12 men would sit down around the table in their dining room in the basement to another poison lace feast, dressed in their finest clothes. After two years, the men in the squad had had enough. The side effect of the meals were getting to be too much, and they went on strike, refusing to keep eating the borax tablets that were causing them so much pain in the summer months when the headaches would be too much to bear. Wiley eventually agreed to stop feeding the chemicals by the end of June. After poisoning the men for two years, Wiley had discovered that borax caused pain. And he also knew that he wasn't done with his test, so he fired the weaker members of the poison squad and hired new ones, all who were clamoring to get into the group of heroes and keep on testing. With the borax test finished, he had the chef Perry prepare meals with a new chemical that was commonly used in preserving food, salicylic acid. This acid that used to be used to keep green peas and beans green for longer, is nowadays used to burn off warts. By adding a cream with the chemical in it, it will slowly burn off the wart in layers. It's also used to remove calluses and corns on your feet. The warnings today on labels say that if you get any of this substance on your skin or in your eyes to wash the area with warm water for 15 minutes. If it is ingested, go to the hospital immediately. The poison squad was eating it every single night, mixed in with scalloped potatoes. By 1907, the tests ended. It was determined that the members of the Poison Squad were basically on a slow march to death. One member caught tuberculosis from having a weakened immune system and died. His family tried to sue Harvey, but couldn't prove that the poison caused him to be weak enough to catch the illness. After Wiley had determined that the salicylic acid was unfit for human consumption, he had moved on to testing formaldehyde which was often used in dairy products and discovered that it not only made the squad extremely sick, but also stained their kidneys. Then it was on to benzinate, which gave the entire squad blood vessel damage and made them all lose massive amounts of weight. In the end, Wiley decided he had enough results to move on and sent the poison squad home. You might think 
that these people were completely nuts. And you're not wrong. You might think that Wiley was some kind of sadistic psycho feeding poison every night to these young men. But the mission was to try and figure out why children, women, everyone was dying from eating food. There were no laws. Companies were not held in check. The only reason that we can open food today and eat it knowingly was because of these men. By 1906, thousands of women took to the streets protesting the use of chemicals in the food they were feeding their families, inspired by the results of the poison squad. The women protesters teamed up with Wiley and together their efforts resulted in the Pure Food and Drug Act being passed by President Roosevelt. This law prevented the manufacture, sale, or transportation of adulterated or misbranded or poisoned food. Drugs, medicines, and liquors also had to be labeled. Any food or drug sold in the United States now had to include all of its ingredients on its label, including the percentage of narcotics if they were present. The result of the law being passed was that the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, was born. People stopped becoming ill and dying from food, but Wiley didn't stop there. He went on to work for the next 30 years testing, not on people though, the effects of household cleaners and more food products, dedicating his entire life to try to keep others safe. The Poison Squad were again completely insane. This rotating group of 12 men sitting down to their poison feasts every night are the reason that you can open that can of coffee and know that it isn't mixed with dirt and cocaine. They are the reason that we can feed our children baby food knowing that we aren't feeding them formaldehyde and borax. They are the reason that I and so many chefs like me can order and prepare food for our customers knowing that we aren't going to kill you, that we aren't going to make you sick. And that is all because of the Poison Squad and what they did. Imagine sitting down to a meal every night for years knowing that you are getting poisoned. Imagine what it felt like to eat tablets of toxins, drink wine laced with arsenic and salad mixed with benzenate. You wake up every morning in pain. Your head is pounding, you're vomiting, and you think you're gonna die. You lie there all day unable to move and then at 4.30 you force yourself out of bed, get dressed in a tuxedo, and go back to the dining room in the basement with the sound of the gramophone getting closer and closer to do it all over again. You'd have to be a little bit crazy. You'd have to believe in what you were doing. And they did. And because of the Poison Squad, we're all safe. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me and produced by Timothy McDonald. I want to give this week's shout out to Restaurant Savannah Munich in Munich, Germany. If you're going to Munich or live there, please stop by and say hello from us. I want to thank The New Yorker Magazine and Buzzsprout for letting us talk about them again this week. If you want to write to us for any reason at all, you can reach us at letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. 
That's Chef, B-R-I-A-N-C-L-A-R-K-E. If you can take the time to tell someone about the show, we would really appreciate it, and we are very easy to find. We are back next Thursday with another brand new episode of Let's Talk About Chef. And so, until then, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service, and have a great week.